Well, hopefully you have a bulletin and have some notes that are in there for you. If you'd like to open those up and find those, you might find it helpful and useful uh, to follow along with uh, my message this morning. Well, it was several years ago when Kendall was about seven and Emerson was about five. I think it was somewhere right around in there. And uh, Halloween was upon us, and a lot of times what we had done with our kids is gone to visit their cousins. But this is one year we decided not to, and our neighborhood and our street neighbors were, had some candy, and they wanted our kids to come by. And so we uh, had our kids get dressed up. Kendall was a uh, little red riding hood, and uh, Emerson was the Incredible Hulk. And uh, I remember seeing that, and it was fun to do that. In fact... I have the mask that no longer fits him as well that goes with that. And so I love that mask because it's like, you know, and you put that on. I remember the first time I saw that with him, I thought, man, that is a cool mask. And years went by and it was kind of cracked and a little bit beat up. And my wife was, had that in the trash. I'm like, you can't throw that out. That might be useful for a sermon one day. <laughs> so here we are. So this mask he has on. And, and as we go down the street, at the end of our street, uh, there's a, a, a house uh, where a family has invited other neighbors and friends, I guess, to bring a camping chair, and they set up a fire pit right in the center of their driveway. And so as you went up to them, you basically had your, your bag or whatever, and you went up to the couples if, as, they, as they were sitting there in their camping chairs and said, trick or treat, and they give you a treat. Well, it came to the point where their, Emerson went up to this one woman and as the Incredible Hulk, and said, trick or treat. And at that very moment, when he walked up to her, she went, oh, 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 kind of freaked out. Everyone paused for a moment as she did that, and, and uh, then we kind of laughed and, and uh, went on with it. And I just remember thinking that was, that was kind of fun that she did that, knowing that sincerely she was not really afraid of the Incredible Hulk, a five-year-old Incredible Hulk, to say the least. Why do I share that with you? Well, it illustrates something I want to focus on this morning, two key topics that Jesus addresses with his disciples, and they are this, hypocrisy and fear. Hypocrisy and fear, and you think, how can hypocrisy go with this description of this woman reacting that way? I can get fear, perhaps, it's portrayal of fear, but hypocrisy... Well, this morning we wanted to look at in the passage we're going to focus on, the topic of hypocrisy and the topic of fear come up, and we're going to look at that this morning. We're going to look at it as a definition in the first century of what hypocrisy meant, and then we'll also look at it as in the 21st century what hypocrisy means and how we look at that. And then we're going to look at fear because that's something that Jesus addressed with his disciples. And so we're continuing our series knowing the truth about Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, and today... We are halfway through this series. Can you believe it? We've come to chapter 12, and I did the math, and since there's 24 chapters in the book of Luke, that means we're halfway. And so we're halfway through the book, but that's not the most important point that I want to bring out to you that we're halfway through this book. Rather, this presents a more important point. I call it a turning point in the life and ministry of Jesus. It's really a turning point in the life and ministry of Jesus and we're going to see this and kind of start back where we were uh, left off last week. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. 
And we're going to be looking here in just a second of a couple verses right before that in verses 53 and 54. Let me, let me set this up for you and what we're about to read so you can kind of grasp the sense and the feeling as though you were there and you sense the mood and what maybe some of the thoughts were. So there's a huge crowd that we're going to see that's gathered here. I imagine the crowd like something you would see in the newspaper or on TV on Black Friday night where you had seen all those people lined up in the middle of the night to get their Black Friday TV, right? That kind of that crowd outside the big box store like a Best Buy or something. Or, or maybe it's more like a crowd that when the iPhone used to be released and there were lines that were blocks long, uh, people standing in line for a couple days so that they could get their, new, their hands on the new iPhone. It's a crowd like that. It, it's gathered that's there. There's thousands of people. And in this case, kind of like sometimes those Black Friday deals and the doors open, there's a crowd stepping onto one another. There's, they're, they're just rushing the door, if you will. They're rushing up because they want to get to Jesus. You see, at this point in the time, they've been watching Jesus, and they've seen that when they hang out with him, these things called miracles happen. And you're like anybody else, if you knew that there was a miracle worker, you might go, you know, I kind of want to get a front row this time. I want to run up and see that. Well, there's not just you. There's thousands. And the thousands are behind you stepping on you to get to Jesus. And like me, I would be kind of going, and not only a miracle, but also what could you do for me? How could you serve me today, Jesus? What would that look like? And that's the saying that we have here and what we're going to be looking at. And yet it's not the thousands of people that serves as the catalyst for this turning point halfway through this book. Rather, it's what Jesus said. It's what Jesus said to the scribes and the Pharisees in chapter 11 that in their reaction to it that serves as this turning point. So I hope you have a Bible, and hopefully you're open to Luke chapter 12. Go up two verses before chapter 12, and you're going to see verses 53 and 54 of chapter 11. If you have a Bible, great. If you want to pull out your smartphone and pull out our app, you can even see it, uh, this passage listed there within the app. Verse 53, Luke chapter 11. When he, that's Jesus, left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him in something he might say. So this is our setting. This is a turning point in the life and ministry of Jesus in his relationship with the Pharisees, with the scribes, with the teachers of the law. And in Luke chapter 11, verses 37 to 52, where Pastor Mike took us through last week, there are what we call woes, six woes or six judgments that Jesus brings out upon the Pharisees. He says, woe to you, judgment upon you, not once, not twice, but six times. And so at this point, you can imagine how these scribes and Pharisees, that this rabbi is throwing out judgment on them, the church leaders, the authority of the church. Who is this guy? He even claims to be God. I've heard that he does that. And by, we all know in the law, if he does that and he's not God, that's a capital offense punishable by death. And so you can imagine that in this setting, when he left them, the scribes and Pharisees began to be very hostile towards him because they just heard those woes. It says here in the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, which I'm using today, says that the scribes and the Pharisees became very hostile towards Jesus. If you have the English Standard Version, another favorite version of mine I like to use is they sought to press and provoke him. 
in the inter New International Version, the 1984 version, which I love, says that they began to oppose him fiercely. So that's the setting of the mob of the crowd stepping on one another, of this coming up of what Jesus has just said, and here's this setting and how they're feeling. Here's what I want you to understand. Regardless of how it's translated, whatever translation you have, the motive to kill Jesus is now set in the hearts of the scribes and the Pharisees. It is fixed on them. It is consuming them. They, it says here that they are out, that they could catch him. It's something he might say. Maybe something he might do. We see that through Scripture as well, but something he might say. And so it's with this and recognizing this turning point and the motive to kill Jesus now set in the hearts of the religious leaders, Luke lets us into something here. He writes this in verse 1 of chapter 12. Look in your Bible. It says, under these circumstances, so we just looked at those, explained those, after so many thousands of people, there they are, had gathered together that they were stepping on one another, he, Jesus, began saying to his disciples. Let's pause right there for a moment. So we have this massive crowd. We've heard, seen what he said to the Pharisees, and here it is. This crowd is there, and he has his disciples. And at this moment, it's as though he pulls the car over and says, Guys, guys, I, I want to address something with you. I want to address two topics with you. I want to address the topic of hypocrisy, and I want to address the topic of fear. I want to address the topic of hypocrisy, and I want to take and address the topic of fear. You see, in the midst of the pandemonium, Jesus seizes that, and he recognizes and addresses the sin of hypocrisy in the lives of the scribes and Pharisees. It's a teachable moment about hypocrisy. Now, let's go back to verse 1, the second part of it, when it says he began to say these things to his disciples. And it says this, First of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. But there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and whatever you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops or the rooftops. So he has their attention. I don't know if the crowd, if he's taken them away and kind of set them aside and the crowd's right there, or somehow it's one of those moments where you can just kind of tune out. Like today in the Super Bowl, how that, the, the team can just tune out to the crowd and focus on the play that they've got to run. Whatever it is, he's got his attention. Why does Jesus address his disciples at this point? Why, why do this? Why, so to speak, pull the car over and address them about hypocrisy? Because they're susceptible to hypocrisy themselves. And he uses a metaphor, an illustration here, with the word leaven. Or is it translated yeast? What, what is yeast? Yeast is a microscopic fungus that acts as a fermenting agent affecting the whole batch of dough. Those of you who bake bread and know about that understand that. Those of us who don't know how good, though, it can taste, right? So yeast is a very powerful substance. Yeast eats the flour and sugar and releases a gas within it and it affects the entire dough. I don't know about you, but back in the mid-90s when I got married, one of the wedding gifts you were most likely to receive and you put it on the wish list was, uh, what was your registry was a bread maker. Do you remember when the bread makers came out? And I remember when we got our bread maker, like, we got a bread maker. No longer just doing muffins and cakes. We actually get to make bread. 
in the bread machine. Like, what is this going to do? And I remember when we had our first, like, box of bread and, 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 and the ingredients that were in there. And I remember seeing this little tiny little packet. And it was the yeast. And I said to, to my wife, I said, Pam, what, what exactly is this? She goes, that's the yeast. I go, that's the yeast? What's that doing? And she goes, well, that makes the bread rise. Oh, that little pack. Because look at all this other substances we have. And that little amount's going to do, like, yeah. Wow. Man, that yeast is some pretty powerful, potent stuff. I didn't realize that. And yet, here's what can happen. A very small amount affects the whole amount of dough, right? Nothing's left untouched. Well, in the same way, in the same way, what Jesus is trying to bring out here using this metaphor is a very small amount of hypocrisy affects the whole person. Not just a little part of him, not just over in the corner, not just that hidden part, but all of him. All of him is impacted. Nothing is left untouched. Which brings us to this word hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, what does that mean? Well, it simply means to play a role, to pretend to be insincere. To play a role to pretend to be insincere. He uses this and he combines it there in verse chapter 1. Beware of them, or you might have a translation that says, be on guard of the leaven or the yeast of the Pharisees, which is what? Which in his, this case is hypocrisy. So Jesus wants to bring this out and bring this to your attention to teach on this. Well, why is he doing this? Well, in New Testament times, what's really interesting is an actor was called a hypocrite. An actor in first, te- first century times is called a hypocrite. And a hypocrite didn't have a negative connotation associated with it like when we think of that word today. In fact, in New Testament times, the drama was performed live on stage by a cast of, you guessed it, hypocrites. How did they do that? Well, they would do the role, they'd play the role, and they would grab a mask and put that on themselves. Maybe not the Incredible Hulk, but they would put a mask on themselves and play that role, pretend to be that person, even though they really weren't that person. They were sincerely... They were, they were sincerely playing it, maybe, but they were not sincerely really that person who they portrayed. In a similar manner, the scribes and the Pharisees portrayed, played the role of being men who sought after God. Now, it's not saying that none of them did and that they never did it at all, but Jesus is calling them out on this because they're missing the heart of it, the truth of it. They pretended to possess hearts that were close to God, but in reality, they were just pretending they were insincere in their relationship with him. And as I thought about that, I thought, well, that's them. What about us? What's the truth for you and me today? Like the disciples as Christians, I think we're susceptible to the idea of becoming hypocrites ourselves. Let me give you some examples. Think about this, and don't raise your hand if you can say, oh, yes, that's been me. But I don't know about you, but on church on Sunday, I can portray a pretty good marriage. I can play the role of being a good husband. But, but come Monday, I, I may not have the, the exact role that I'm portraying to other people. Or maybe it's my language of what I say on, a, say on a Monday, how I talk around other Christians, how I talk at church versus how I talk to somebody else, whether it's a family member, a neighbor, somebody who cut me off on the way to work, whatever it might be, you go, what, what role are you playing here? 
right? Or maybe, maybe it's parenting, how you parent on Sunday and the kids come in and they all seem to be all together. But man, come Wednesday, trying to get ready for school halfway through the week and you're like, man, I've lost my mind, right? And that craziness and that portrayal that we might have on Sunday versus what's reality? What's it really like outside of the church? Or maybe it's my financial habits. On Sunday, I always give a tenth of what I make. But maybe on Thursday, the way I spent my money, I was on the checkout line like, oh, yeah, I'll grab that. And, and sure, you want that? Sure, let's grab that. And how we manage our finances outside, you go, is, is that following what Scripture says? I know that's none of you. It's just me. But think of it this way. Or how about our entertainment choices? How we do that on Sunday versus how we do that maybe on Friday night. So I kind of grew up in a household where the portrayal of how you watch and listen to on Sunday, well, that's different than what you're going to watch and listen to the rest of the week. Not in a drastic way, but it was like forbidden on Sunday to watch a movie. But you can go do that on a Friday. My, my point is this, is we are susceptible to playing a certain role, pretending to be a certain way in front of others that are Christians that might judge us. Versus how we actually live our lives outside where no one is there to see us, to, to, to portray that out. I think it's in this way where Brennan Manning got this saying or made, came up with this quote. And he said this. He said, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips but walk out the door and deny them by their lifestyle. That, <laughs> that is when an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. I don't know about you, but I know I've been there at different times. Hypocrisy is insincerity by virtue of pretending to have qualities of beliefs that you do not really have. I'm not saying we're going to live perfect lives outside the church. I'm just saying that Jesus is saying, hey, guys, I want you to be aware of how susceptible we can all be, how, how vulnerable we can be to portraying something that we're really not. I think a key lesson for us, for Christians, is this. A true measure for being a Christian is who you are when no one is watching. Who are you when no one's watching? Who is that person? In effect, Jesus was asking his disciples, who are you when no one is watching? And I think he's asking us the same question implied here. Who, who are you? Who are you going to be outside when no one else is watching? As Dwight L. Moody put it, character is who you are in the dark. Why do I bring all this out? Well, go back to the text here. But there is nothing covered up with how you live in the week, right? Or on Sunday. It doesn't matter. Everything, nothing is going to be hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you have said, even in the dark, will be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. What Jesus is just trying to say is, look, guys, the Pharisees say a thing, do something else. I don't want you to be that way. As I minister to you, as I work with you, I want you to look in who you are, to know that whatever you're saying, whatever you're doing, whether I'm around or not, it's God knows it all. God sees it all. God is aware of it all. That's what he's bringing out here. And so that Jesus has his disciples' attention now, and he's bringing this in deeper on the seriousness of hypocrisy. 
I think what moves forward now as we're going to look at in the text is maybe some fear that they have. In other words, if they're processing through fear of the influence and power of the Pharisees and what could happen to them and his disciples. In other words, think of it like this. If the Pharisees are intent on finding a way to kill Jesus, could it be possible that they'd be on a mission to find a way to kill his followers, especially his close 12 that are with him? I think it's in that anxiety, that potential of recognizing that there could be some fear there that Jesus addresses this and to take them through something here, which is a teachable moment about what I'll call good fear. A teachable moment about good fear. And look at verse 4, just the very first beginning of it. He says this, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid. We're going to look at that in just a second. But he says, do not be afraid. So this is where this subject or topic of fear comes in. But let's understand what he means by fear in this context. The Greek word is phobeo. We get our word phobia from that. Classic arachnophobia, right? Being afraid of spiders. And I just want you to know that I don't think there's any spiders in here, but you can never be positive. So keep, your, keep, your, keep a lookout, right? No. Um, but we might have a fear of heights. We might have a fear of the dark or other fears that we possess and wrestle with. And what we have here is Jesus saying, hey, I recognize that you might be afraid of certain things. That's why he's bringing it up, Right? And so as he says this to him, as he says, I want you to be aware of this, it's in this context that there's a different kind of fear. You see, usually when we look at Scripture, we see fear of the Lord or fear of the Lord or that concept. Often the context implies a reverent fear of God, kind of a bowing down in honor and recognition, a reverent fear of God, of his holiness, but in the context here, I don't believe that's exactly what kind of fear Jesus is speaking of. Well, that's good. There's a different kind of fear. I call it the be afraid <laughs> kind of fear because they're feeling that. The be afraid kind of fear. Be afraid of the fear in the Old Testament that accompanied the ten plagues in Egypt. That kind of be afraid fear. That's not a reverent fear that he's trying to impose upon Pharaoh. That's a be afraid of God kind of fear. Or the big afraid fear that came about in the New Testament church when Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 sold the property and lied about how much they sold it for what they gave to the church. And Peter asks Ananias and says, hey, is this the price you sold it for? Yes. And then moments later, he dies. And it says in verse 5 of Acts chapter 5 that great fear came over the church. That wasn't a reverent fear. That was a yikes, kind of be afraid kind of fear. It's to get the church's attention, the believer's attention. And in verse 11, Sapphira walks in, and it's asked again. Peter says, hey, did you, did you, is this what you sold it for? And she says, yeah. And then he says, well, the guys that just took out your husband are going to take you out. She drops dead. And it says in verse 11 that great fear sees the church. It came over them, the be afraid kind of fear. And so it's this be afraid kind of fear that Jesus, in a very firm but very loving and compassionate way, says this, look back in verse 4 and 5. I say to you, my friends, his disciples, the believers, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that are no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear, 
Fear the one who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So he's bringing a contrast here of what kind of fear he's speaking of and who to fear, which brings us to the question, why should we fear God? Let me just offer two reasons why you should fear God. First, we should fear God, the good kind of fear, the be afraid kind of fear, because of his position over us. Because of his position over us. The immediate fear his disciples felt their lives wasn't from the Roman guards, even though they were occupying the land. It was from the Pharisees. Well, why these guys? Well, the Pharisees not only served as the church leaders, they also served as, a, as basically the judge and jury of society in Judaism. What they said went. And they had the ability to call using the law and the authority of the law to have you punished, to have punishment bring you brought upon you, even to the point if you do and break the laws and in certain cases to even p- pronounce death upon you. So a very real scenario could arise where these guys are thinking, okay, if I allow myself to it to be known that I'm a follower of Jesus, that I'm one of his disciples. Like they came to Peter, aren't you one of him? When Christ is being crucified, no, 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 that's not me. Recognizing that they're susceptible to this, that they could portray one thing one day and then go out in the week and portray something that's not quite matched up. And so he's bringing this to their attention that we should fear his position over us. How so? Well, they're susceptible to hypocrisy masking the cover up their relationship with Christ, but this is what Jesus says. He says, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. I don't know about you, but I can't imagine just being sit- sitting there and listening to Jesus and have him say, don't be afraid of someone who can kill you. Don't be afraid of that. That's all they can do. It's all they can do. It's the only thing they can do is kill you. Yes, they can kill you, but that's it. They can't do anything else. I don't know about you, but I'd be kind of processing that through going, that's just not as easy to, to accept or to swallow maybe as something else, that, like you love me or something, right? And I thought about this. Well, maybe we don't have to worry today, thankfully, in America about because of being a follower of Jesus that it would risk our lives like it is in other countries. But, but maybe there's that temptation at work. If you let your Christianity, being a follower of Christ, a little well too known, a little bit too outspoken, well, that could kill a job promotion. It could kill a raise, potentially even kill your job. Because someone goes, I just don't like those people that follow Jesus. So it could happen that way. As an, as an example. Or maybe it's if you're a student and you're in college or in school and whatever it is and the professor takes a pretty strong stance about what he believes about the Bible and those Christians, knowing that there's a reputation, there's, there's this trending kind of, I really let Christ be known, that could kill the grade I'm hoping to get. Whatever it is, whatever it might be, Jesus says, don't fear what man can do to you whether it's your life or for us, what could be killed off as a result of being in a relationship with Jesus. Their position over you is limited, mine is not. That's why we should fear God. The second reason why we should fear God is you should fear God because of his power over us. 
because of his power over us. Look at what he explains here about his power. But I will warn you, disciples, whom to fear. Okay, here it is. Fear the one, capitalized, referring to God, referring to Jesus, who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, in case you didn't get it, I tell you, fear him. Fear that one. Another human can take your life, but they cannot govern where you're going to spend eternity. God can. That's the power he has. You know, one day all of us will die, and one day we will either hear Jesus say, come, share in your Father's happiness, or, if we don't know Jesus, depart from me, I never knew you. That's the power that God has and why we should have a good fear over him. Only God has the power over your soul, and Jesus says, fear him, be afraid of his power over you, not man's. I think as I, as I process that through, I thought, well, how does that impact me? This reality of being afraid of God's power over me should inspire me in how I share Christ. It should impact the way I share Christ. And I thought for myself, I wrote this down, can I, like Jesus, say to an unsaved person, my friend, be afraid of God. It's hell if you won't. Do I want to go there? Or, or, or do I want to... Mask the truth, if you will, and only portray, at least through me and my conversations with them, is God is only a loving God. God is only a forgiving God. God is only a gracious God, that there's not a justice side to God. It's possible. Or do I want to be insincere about what I know to be true about his word? And it's just that element there. Not every day, but I think I'm vulnerable. I'm susceptible to kind of you know, masking what might be in truth. I don't want to, I'll say this, but I don't want to say that because that could be offensive. They could turn against me. And this is why having a good fear of God is so vital to our walk with Christ because it impacts our witness for him and what we say. When we truly recognize God's position and power over us, I believe it's at this point that blessings come about, which raises the question, what are the blessings from having a good fear of God? A good, not only reverent fear, but a be afraid even kind of fear. Let me offer four blessings. One, when you have a good fear of God, you can experience his love and his care. Look at verses 6 and 7. Are not five sparrows sold for two cents? Yet not one of them is forgotten before God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear you. Do not fear, sorry. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Again, you can experience his love and care. It's a blessing that comes about. So to illustrate this invaluable blessing, Jesus compares his disciples to a bunch of small little birds. I don't know about you, but I don't think of myself being compared to a bunch of birds, let alone sparrows. A hawk, an eagle, I could work with that maybe, but a sparrow? They're so plentiful everywhere. Why does he use a sparrow? Because they're so plentiful everywhere. And, and specifically, what's interesting is in Old Testament Jewish festivals called for a blood sacrifice. If you were so poor that you could not afford to bring a lamb or a goat, but you wanted to offer something in worship at the temple, what would you do? Well, the provision was made that you could purchase 
for two cents, five sparrows. You know, I, I, I can't afford that. Okay, one cent gives you not one, but two sparrows for one cent. He gives this contrast of saying, here's something about a sparrow, how cheap they are to complete the sacrifice and worship to God. And what does he say here in verse 6? Yet not one of them is forgotten before God. Not one of them is forgotten before God. That's a blessing you can have when you have a good fear. You can experience his love and his care. How much more valuable are you? That's his point. How much more valuable are you? And then he says, the very hairs of your head are numbered. For some of us, that's more than others, right? For the numbers on that, we get that. And he says, do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. He's saying, guys, I don't want you to be playing a role here. I want you to be real. Inside and outside, in the dark, in the light, what you talk, what you whisper, it's all going to be heard before a holy God. And he's simply saying, look, there's a blessing that comes from having a good fear. And since you're going to know my love and you're going to know my care, I'll use sparrows to make the point. They got it. The second blessing that can come when we have a good fear of God is you can experience his assurance and his peace. You can experience his assurance and his peace. Look at verses 8 and 9. And I say to you, brethren, disciples, his, his, his children, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him also before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. You can experience his assurance and his peace when you have a good fear of God. You see, hypocrisy's price is too high. For it has the potential to be denied before God if you truly don't know God. If you're just portraying it, and we all think that you are, but you really aren't, there's a consequence to that. However, if you know God, you have a good fear, and God says and assures you that you will be acknowledged before the angels. You will be acknowledged before my Father when that time comes for you to pass away. And it's that kind of assurance, that kind of peace it says that God says is a blessing that you can have that gives to the soul. It reminds me of Pastor Francis Chan who shared a story about uh, a guy who had gotten up at a memorial service. And I don't know if he shared a testimony or just shared a memory or he shared the eulogy. But he proclaimed to know Christ as his Savior. He sat down and before the service was over, that gentleman passed away. And I remember Francis saying the point, can you imagine you're standing before a whole, whole presence of people, a crowd, confessing, acknowledging Christ as your Savior, and then at this moment you fall over and die, and moments later you have Jesus acknowledging you before the angels, before his Father, to realize that that's the kind of assurance and peace we have when we have a good fear of God. Another blessing that comes about is when you have a good fear of God, you can experience his forgiveness. You can experience his forgiveness. Look at verse 10. And anyone or everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, that's Jesus, it will be forgiven him. Well, that's good. But, but, but what? But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. 
I don't know about you, but as in your Christian life, have you ever, you don't need to raise your hands, uh, I'll be the one who does. Has ever been concerned or wondered, did I commit an unforgivable sin, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? I mean, it says it right here in verse 10 that that's unforgivable. I know I've said things against Jesus and about God, but according to this, that's forgivable. But if I sin the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, it's not well, let me submit to you, if you're a Christian and you're a believer and you've ever had that concern, I promise you, likely you have not ever sinned the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? A whole sermon could be given on this, but for our time, let me just snapshot it this way. It means to reject the saving work of the Holy Spirit in your life. What does that mean? Well, it means to reject the gospel. How so? Well, if you're like me and I'm like you, chances are you heard the gospel when you were younger, right? And as God began to speak through a person giving the word of God, or your Sunday school teacher, or a parent, you began to listen. And as time moved on, you sensed that God was saying to you, you know what, you need to receive Jesus as your Savior. Yes, you'd heard it, but you actually sensed that. You believe that God's telling me, I need to repent and get saved. And then as you did that, you came to know God's word and the Holy Spirit helps illuminate the truth so you can understand it. And as you go through life, you continue what's called sanctification, becoming more like Christ. It's to the person who heard all that, went through all that, but said no to God. And continually said no, 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 no to the work of the Holy Spirit, working in the person's life, drawing them into a relationship with Jesus, offering salvation. And the person says, no, I don't want to hear it. No, I don't want it. The Bible says that God can harden our hearts. That gives me a, yikes, be afraid kind of fear that God will do that to somebody who rejects him. And yet what he's saying here is that, hey, to the person who said something against Jesus, that will be forgiven. Oh, who's ever done that? Oh, I don't know, a guy by the name of Peter. Denied him not once, not twice, but three times that he knew him. He says, that, I'll, I'll, I'll forgive that. But what about the father? Well, the prophets in the Old Testament were sent, and basically they killed them. So they resisted and rejected the father. They rejected the son. What's left? Well, you see the triune picture here coming in. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the work of the Holy Spirit trying to draw someone into a relationship with God. Jesus says, hey, I'll forgive you for rejecting my son or saying something against my son, provided you're coming to repentance. But the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, resisting that to the moment that you die and you've never received Christ, that, that is unforgivable. That's the picture here of what he's bringing out. There's a fourth blessing, a final one I want to bring to you is this. When you have a good fear of God, you can experience his provision and you can experience his faithfulness. Look at what he says in verses 11 and 12. Jesus says, when the, they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, that's the scribes and the Pharisees are referring to there, do not worry. About what? About how or what you are to speak in your defense. Or what you are to say. Well, how so? Verse 12. 
For the Holy Spirit, yet to come upon them yet, this is coming, but the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. See, when you have a good fear of God, the blessing that comes about and you can experience is provision and faithfulness, that God provides you right exactly what to say, that he gives you that all the time. He's faithful to do that. And I think he's doing this to take them back where they were. Again, picture the scene. He's just rebuked the scribes and the Pharisees six different times. The scribes and the Pharisees are intent on finding a way to kill him. And the disciples are thinking, man, if they're going to do that to him, they might want to do that to me. What if I'm thrown in to a synagogue? What happens then, Jesus? He says, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. It's going to enable you to speak what you need to speak. You have that provision from me. And you're going to have it every single time that you encounter a situation like that. For us, I somehow kind of think of it like this. Jesus saying, look, I know you're going to overcome, you're going to struggle to overcome anxiety, being a follower of me. And I realize that maybe you're going to sense that there's some things that could be, so to speak, blessings that could be killed off <laughs> in your life. Maybe an opportunity because of knowing me. Maybe you're going to be treated unfairly, maybe even unlawfully, on account of me. But Jesus is saying, I'm going to be there with you through that. And should that happen, disciples, should that happen, Christians, today, I will provide you with the words to speak. I will faithfully take you through this. This is my blessing to you for having a good fear of me. That is the provision and faithfulness that God's willing to give. And church history tells us that 11 of the 12 disciples, excluding Judas, we get that picture, but 11 of the 12 were put to death for their faith. This became real for them. They would know what it meant to have the Holy Spirit speak on their behalf. The, the, the 12th one, like, what about the guy who seemed to survive? He even was boiled in a uh, church history tells us, historians tell us he's boiled in a, a barrel of oil and that still didn't kill him. That's John. They could not kill John and they're like, what can we do with this guy? And they shipped him off to the island of Patmos. And it's while he's on that island that God speaks to him and he receives the revelation, the book of revelation that we have to wrap up the New Testament. God's faithful. God provides God is willing to forgive. God gives us assurance and peace. God loves us and he cares for us. Regardless of what we have today or what's going to happen tomorrow, because of being a Christian, the Holy Spirit will be there to guide you, to comfort you. It's part of what God provides to us and we have a good fear of him. Well, let me conclude with a final question for you. A good question to ask yourself today is this. Do you fear God as much as you love him? Do you fear God as much as you love him? I think, for me, it's pretty easy for me to want, to desire, to love God. And so with that, I conclude with this. At the end of the story that I didn't tell you was when we were having that time there at the uh, trick-or-treating. And that woman said, whoa, 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 and freaked out. Well, what I didn't tell you was what Emerson's response was. 
So he has this mask on, and as he has it on there, and that woman freaks out, unbeknownst to us of what he would do, he does this. It's okay. It's just me. It's just me. Friends, I want to invite you to come before God and say, God, it's just me. God, I pray that you would help us to allow us to let you just be who you are and us be who we are and let you to speak through us and teach us. God, I pray that you give us a good fear, a healthy fear of you as we live out our Christian life. God, help us to not be susceptible to hypocrisy and that fear. But God, may we trust in you and walk in your ways. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.